Hey guys, welcome to the Pro Writer Mindset Podcast. I am your host, Jennifer Blanchard. I am super, super excited to be here today because I have an amazing guest. Her name is Marion Roach-Smith. I actually had the chance to meet her at Jeff Goins' Tribe Conference this year, and it was just incredible to connect with someone who has such passion for what she does. So Marion believes that everyone has a story to tell. She is the author of four books, all of which contain a large degree of memoir. Her most recent book is The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing and life. Um, It's an irreverent, quirky, provocative product on the countless memoir classes that she's taught for more than a decade. Um, Under the name Marion Roach, she is the author of The Roots of Desire, The Myth, Meaning, and Sexual Power of Red Hair, Um, the co-author with famed forensic pathologist Michael Baden, excuse me, um, of Dead Reckoning, and of another name for madness. Um, She is a former staff member of the New York Times, and she's written for Good Housekeeping, Martha Stewart Living, Prevention, Discover, The Los Angeles Times, and countless others. And since 1998, she has taught classes in writing memoir and now does so in person and online. And you can find her at marionroach.com. So welcome, Marion. Thank you so much. It was such a joy to meet you at the Tribe Conference and really a great joy to be on a podcast. Podcasts are my favorite things in the world. So there you go. They're a lot of fun. It's, it's different than just writing a guest post for someone's site, so it's fun to get to interact. Yes, it's far more intimate, and there's just so much better give and take, and we can, I think we can communicate better. It's, it's delightful, so thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled to have you here. So um, I would love to just, for people who aren't really familiar with your work or just, you know, you as a writer, I would love to just sort of hear a little bit more about how you became the writer you are today, so a little bit about your story. Of course. Well, I started working at the New York Times straight out of college. There were these entry-level jobs called Copyboy, even though I'm a woman. They were still called Copyboy. And it was running around the huge newsroom of the New York Times doing all the things that needed to be done to move news from one place to the other because this is pre-digital age. While I was there, while we went to what we call cold type, I just experienced an amazing revolution in the way we deliver news by being there at the time I was. And while I was at the Times, my mother developed a disease that I had never heard of. And she was was literally losing her mind in handfuls. She was 49 years old, and she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And there was no listing in the New York City phone book. There was no federal research dollars. There was the bare beginnings of an Alzheimer's association. And I was astonished to find out that 4.5 million people in the country had the disease, and I'd never heard of it. And I went to the New York Times Magazine editor and said, gee, Somebody should write a piece about this. Um, no, He said, I've never heard of it. And he called in one of his science editors, and he said, well, I've heard of it, but I don't think anyone's doing any research on it. And it's hard to imagine that time, but this was 1981. And so um, I thought about that for a while and eventually wrote the magazine piece that helped start the national dialogue and actually the international dialogue on Alzheimer's disease. It appeared in the New York Times Magazine, and I ended up on the Today Show the next day. And for four years, literally following that publication, um, went on around the world talking about Alzheimer's, appearing on every major talk show, eventually being on the Today Show four times, testifying before Congress four times, and helping to um, encourage a dialogue in the, one of the greatest healthcare crises in the history of the world. So it came out of a piece of memoir because I was a kid when I wrote that. I was 26, and I was battling something I did not understand, which is a great place to write from. 
from counterphobia. And we can talk about that if you want. I have a, I have a theory on writing from counterphobia. It's very helpful to do so. <laughs> so that's my story. And after, after that, I, I went on and wrote a book about it and, and three other books since, as you mentioned. And here I am on your show. Wow. That's, that's amazing to think that there was a time when that disease was not well known. But I suppose that's true of almost anything. I think so. It had been discovered in 1906, and no one had any, done any research except for this one lab in New York City. And uh, I was lucky enough to live in the city at the time and get a real diagnosis. And I'll never think I was lucky enough to have a parent who had it, but I was. there was some gift there about being the one to write about it, because otherwise I simply would have gone mad right along with her. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, and what was the word again, counter... Counterphobia. It's the things you're afraid of, and writing from a place of fear of the things that literally do challenge you, I have discovered is one of the greatest places to write from because then you get a deep sense of immediacy. I'm the most squeamish person I've ever met, and I'm not proud of it. Um, But writing about brain science and going and looking at brain autopsies uh, gave me a, a, a vision into the brain that somebody who's sort of hard-edged and has seen lots of them just doesn't bring to looking at the brain. Similarly, in the book I wrote with Dr. Michael Bodden about forensic pathology, I went to autopsies. And instead of passing out, I was swept up in the wonder of the internal workings of the human body. But I wrote from a place of counterphobia, meaning the <gasps> moment. And if you write from there, the writing gets really good. Wow. So what are you afraid of? Yeah. Like parenting. I'm terrified of parenting. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a parent. But, you know, it's a scary place. So if you write from there, the writing actually gets enhanced. No, I completely – that's actually a great point because that's something I've been wanting to – and you actually inspired me to want to start writing some memoir because I really was always kind of – I don't have anything to write about. I don't have a story. But when I heard you speak, I I listened to what you were saying and – I love the idea of writing about what you're afraid of or, um, you know, read, writing about stuff you went through that was really challenging or that you were afraid of because I had that experience with um, I was afraid of dogs my whole life because I had a lot of mm-hmm. bad experiences when I was young. And so a few years back, I actually got a dog to get over this fear. And it was <laughs> the most nightmarish few days when we first got him. But I got over it eventually. And, you know, now he's like the little love of my life. So, I, I can't even believe there was a time when I was afraid of dogs. So there you go. And if that. we and if you can write about that moment, the moments, because it's not one moment, it, the moments of transition, the moments of aha, the moments of transcendence. It doesn't matter if the reader has never been afraid of dogs, because all of us are afraid of something. And what you're doing there in memoir is sharing your humanity. And as you move through, and if you don't just tell us, but show us that moment when you first put your hand on him, and that moment when you first smelled him, that moment when you first got onto his eye level. Um, As you move through your fear, we'll feel you'll be showing us what you went through. And you don't have to say, I was scared. Show me fear. Show me what happens when you're afraid. It's a great place to write from, but it's also a great thing to share with others. Yeah, I love that. Show me what happens when you're afraid. Because it's different mm. for everybody, right? I think everybody sort of has a different experience of that same exact emotion. There we go. So we're sharing the fact that we have fear. We're sharing fear as opposed to just in our own corners. And look what happens. 
look what just happened here. You told me what you're afraid of. I told you what I'm afraid of. We made a bond. And that's what writing memoir does. Good memoir, not memoir that's diary-like, which excludes everybody, but memoir that's about something, and that something isn't you, is about fear. And then there's going to be some argument you're making about fear, and it might be just as simple as experience conquers fear. Oh, there's a great argument. Who doesn't benefit from knowing that? Right. Yeah, so sort of like thinking of it as how can I – illustrate this thing that I want to write There about. you go. Exactly. Absolutely just hit it right on the head. How do I illustrate this? It's about fear. How do I illustrate it? With your story of your dog. It's perfect. Yeah, I love that. I'm all excited. I'm going to write this. I know I am. I, don't I know can't if wait. Closer. <laughs> I don't know, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, so you... At Tribe, you mentioned something that stood out to me. Well, you mentioned several things that did, but one of the things was that you said memoir is not what you did, it's what you did with it. And I would love to sort of hear you expand on that a little bit. So we just started that conversation by talking about you, your dog, and fear. So if you wrote about, I was afraid of dogs, I've always been afraid of dogs, I was afraid of dogs all my life, and then I got over my fear of dogs. I learned nothing. But if you show me, as I said before, how you got in with this dog. If you show me how fear is transcended with experience, I'm going to see what you did with your fear. So you're laying out an assignment for yourself. Oh, I'm interested in fear. Hmm, what's my best illustration of fear? Oh, my best illustration of fear is my relationship with my dog and transcending my fear. I see. What am I arguing? Oh, I'm arguing that fear can be conquered with experience. Oh, that's great. Then you're showing us something that you did. You're showing us what you did with it. You're taking your fear and transcending it. So it's not that you went to the dentist on Tuesday and you went to the doctor on Wednesday. That's diary, that's diary writing. What I need you to do is show me the moments of intuition, the moments of change. Memoir is all about change. And people think it's all about them. It's not. It's all about moments of transition and transcendence. And so I want to see what you did with the thing. I want to see that in Act 1 you've got some fear. In Act 2 you try all the easy stuff to get rid of your fear. By the end of Act 2 you realize, I'm going to have to try the really hard thing now, aren't I? And then Act 3 you do and you get over your fear. And there is you showing me what you did with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, it's a great little from the whole diary. You get away from the whole diary. Nobody should have to read anybody else's diary unless you're very, very, very famous and we're trying to figure out what you did in a particular day or how you discovered the idea of, you know, like Mendel, you know, the hybridization or Darwin or maybe Sonia Sotomayor, the first female Hispanic Supreme Court justice. I want to read her diary-like memoir. I want to read her autobiography, which is different than memoir, because I want to know how she got to be where she is. But I already know where she got to, and I want to see the steps there. That's different. For me and you, there's memoir, and memoir is about something, and that thing isn't you. I love that. I love that, because I, I think I'm I so talk glad. to a lot of writers who think that it's about them, they, and, and it almost becomes a block for them. So it's like, oh, they honey, me to too. I talk to them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> 
my 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 clients are they come in they come in one way and I send them out another. That's my whole reason for living. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's like it's an important thing to note because if you take the pressure off, it's not about me. It's about what I went through that someone else could learn from. Then that takes the pressure off. It has to be about me, and really gives you that. It's about adding value to someone else's life and being of service. Absolutely, that's so beautifully put. That's exactly right. Well, at least that's going to make me feel better about it because <laughs> that was the one reason I never wanted to write it because I was like. Why would anyone care about my life? It's boring. <laughs> yeah, it's not boring. It's made up of moments of enormous transcendence. But what we don't think about are those. We know something just happened when we go into the store to buy our child his first pair of school shoes. We know that something happened between us and the salesperson when that salesperson was slipping this little shoe onto the little foot and you think you're cool and you're this cool mother and he notes you go into your purse and you reach in and you put your sunglasses on inside the store because you're about to start to cry. And all the salesperson does is pat the back of your hand maybe just once. There's a transaction there of humanity that just happened. But what happens is we get in the car with the purchases, we turn on the radio and we forget all about it. But what happened there was somebody was tremendously kind. And the kindness, the thousands of years of people taking their kids off to school was just passed along by the touch of the laying on of hands. But we just don't write about those moments enough. And therein is where life gets interesting, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's things that you don't even think about that really are the most interesting pieces of being alive. Yeah. People tend to write about weddings and wakes. And I always say to them, oh, that's easy. Show me a transaction between two people that's wordless. And now you've got a piece of writing. Now you've got a moment, a glance, a gesture, a moment of reassurance when somebody steps out of their comfort zone. They happen hundreds of them a day, by the way. We just don't stop and think about them. But we're reassured. Otherwise, we'd all go completely mad in this world. (laughs) You know? I really Mm -hmm. think we would. Yeah, so maybe we need to just pay attention more and write more stuff down. There you go. I keep a legal pad on the driver on the passenger's seat of my car and it is what is getting scribbled when I'm sitting at the stoplight I'm thinking of things and I may I make a lot of notes every day. And then some of them get used to that day, some of them don't get used that day, but you've got to be paying attention. The first rule of writing is to pay attention. Yeah. That's the Totally true. And I think if you don't, you sort of miss, I I don't remember who said the quote, but I remember this quote from years ago that I saw that was like something you pass, you know, thousands of story ideas every day. It's just that you're not paying attention enough to even notice them. But the really good writers may actually catch five or six of them throughout their day because they're paying attention. Right. Yeah. And, And that's just it. And paying attention to what? Paying attention to those transactions that make a difference in how we negotiate the world, those little moments where we bond with a spouse or a child or a dog. My dog is my 12th dog of my life. My dogs are, have been written about, every single one of them has been written about at some point. But my dogs and I have a, a, a wondrous relationship that has to do with trust and love and 
learning and, oh, I could write about my dogs forever. People just don't bother. Yeah. But, you know, then I always wonder, because how many copies did Marley and me sell? You know, 127 million copies in right. 28 languages or something. <laughs> and then became a movie. <laughs> and then became a movie. Yeah. With mm-hmm. some pretty big uh, big name Hollywood players, too, not just some yeah, little Yeah, exactly. Movie. Speaking of which, now you're hearing the squeaky toy in the background. Yeah, I told you we'd hear the squeaky toy. <laughs> he just uh, moved in. Hey, you he, know what? he realized I was speaking about him. Of course. He's like, hey, I heard you talking about me. I have to go in there now. Uh, I better go in for my my cameo role. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love dogs. So great now. Um, so when someone is writing a memoir or working on something, like let's say, you know, they did notice something or they paid attention and they saw a transaction that they thought, I need to write about that, how do they decide what the best vehicle is for telling the story? You know, how do you kind of, choose is it a book is it an essay is it a blog post i don't know how great you question. Decide that yeah it's such a great question and it's such an important thing to know there is really a scale you have to use um and it has to do with how much do you have to say and how deep do you want to go blog posts really are a wonderful vehicle for communicating information and for sharing thoughts but they really don't allow for an enormous depth because the expectation of the reader is not for hundreds and hundreds of words. And yet we're now making, you know, we're, we're communicating better and better online, of course. But for just I'm talking about one's individual blog um, at, on one's website is a good place to get people thinking, maybe sell them an idea, but I don't think it's the best place to go for an in-depth, long essay. There, those are, there are much better places these days. Medium is a great place to write longer, harder, deeper. Um, and then, of course, so many great newspapers have tremendous online options. The New York Times has so many blogs. I was just reading a breathtaking piece today about someone with diabetes and her issues of being blamed for her illness. It's really the piece is really about blame, but she houses it under the in the disability blog on the New York Times and she houses it under this this rubric of this this discussion of diabetics and how they're viewed by people. So there's in, there's levels of how much you want to discuss and what you want to say leading up to a book length version of something. But even at the book length, it's not your life's story. It's still the story of redemption. It's still about something. There's still an argument, and you're choosing scenes from your life with which to populate that argument. And that's true of all pieces of nonfiction. There's just going to be less density in a blog post, a great magazine essay, an on um, an on the air. I do a lot of essays for, for National Public Radio. And then moving up in length and scope to a book length piece. But a lot of people confuse the book length as being your whole life story, and that's just no, there's no reason to think that. The best way to use a book length piece is with a very specific argument about one single thing. And if you want to, in this lifetime, you can write nine or ten book length memoir. And so few people realize that, but some of my favorite writers do exactly that. They time periods of their lives, it's theme or arguments, really. It's, it's different experiences and what they find interesting. So I think it's a great, the great discussion is about what have you got to say and how long would you like to spend with it more than anything else when deciding what the, the uh, platform is. 
Great. That's a, that's, that's a really good. So scaling, looking at just how much you want to say and how deep you want to go and then fitting mm-hmm. it from there. So that's, that's really good advice. Yeah. I and what interests people, you, you know, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, oh yeah, the, that's the question. What interests you? Like, what are you interested in right now? Well, a lot of people are being very stirred up by this election. Okay. Um, well, it's going to be over in a month, no matter what. And so, but what was it that stirred you up? Is it about feminism? Oh, okay, so what about feminism? And then you just keep thinking, what is it that I'm really interested in? One thing that I'm really, really interested in is how much help can one person be to another person, literally. How far can we go in our relationships in terms of help? And and where are the boundaries of help? And that's a really interesting topic and something I've written a lot about. But I don't really feel like writing a book about it. Um, I'm thinking about a book right now, and it's, so much fun to think about, but it's about the scope, and is it going to be enough to sustain a book? So it's what does what interests you, and then doing some research and saying, oh, you know, I'm really interested in fidelity, or I'm really interested in the bond between people, and seeing if there's some something more you need to learn about that first before you sit down and write, and then choosing what platform you want to write it on. Right. Yeah, because I think most people think memoir or they hear memoir and they automatically think book. And I don't think that that's always the case. So I think it's great that you offer up other vehicles for people to deliver their stories with. Yeah, memoir is a genre. And within that, there's all kinds of lengths of memoir. And they can be very, very short. They can be just miniatures, just a few words, as we've all seen, the six-word memoir, up to book lengths and everything in between. Love it. That, that's awesome. So you mentioned, and this was, I think you said this at Tribe too, but you sort of just mentioned it right now, is that you should really focus on one thing in each piece, whether that's a book, whether that's an essay. So if you are writing a book-length memoir, how do you focus on just one thing and still make it a book-length? Because I feel like sometimes mm-hmm. people worry that they're not going to have enough to say about that one thing, and that's why they throw in all these other things that maybe don't fit together as well. Right. And that's a good reason not to write a book-length piece on it. If you haven't got enough to say, then it should be a a long essay. Or try doing it in a short essay, which is the greatest learning vehicle in the world. The personal essay, the 750-word personal essay, which is the standard essay for, uh, used to be the standard essay for radio. Now they're down to 615 words. Try it. I, I challenge my students all the time. Now, so I can't possibly tell it in 615. Oh, my goodness. 615 words is a lot of words. You can tell anything in 615 words. You can tell the history of your marriage in 615 words if your head's in the right place. So it's about finding your area of expertise. Every person has hundreds of them. And memoir is best written from one area of expertise at a time. And when I say that, I mean... You have many areas of expertise. One of them is getting over your fear of dogs. That's interesting to me. How did you do that, I would ask you, if I was plopped down next to you at a dinner party. And we'd be having a very interesting conversation about the moment-to-moment realizations that unlock fear, because I'm that way. I would be asking you questions about it. And along the way, I would be thinking, boy, that would make a great book. Boy, that would make a great essay. Now, that would make a really good personal essay for, you know, and I'm thinking about the places you could publish it. Um, and so it's about one area of expertise at a time, but those are not professionals, the areas of expertise for the most part. Maybe you're the person who can only get, 
you're, I think I used this example at Tribe, maybe you're the only person in your family who can get your mother-in-law to take her medicine. Maybe she's got a chronic illness and you do too, but everybody else in your family are these big strapping football player kind of guys. But she has Crohn's and you've got MS and she somehow sees eye to eye with you and understands that you, you've got a fragility as well. There's a beautiful piece to be written about the bond of illness between two women. Your area of expertise is that you two communicate, that I can communicate with her because I too share this chronic situation. So it's area of expertise. It's what do you know about? Do you know about failed relationships? Do you know about successful ones? Do you know about getting over your fear of a dog? Do you know about that gardening actually makes life better? What do you know about? And you know of so many things, but we just don't tend to think of ourselves that way. Are you the one who has to break the bad news to people in your family? Are you the one that breaks the good news to people in your family? So you write from one area of your expertise at a time, and that sustains a book. Part of that is voice. Part of that is point of view. Um, it'll sustain a whole book. It'll sustain an essay. It'll sustain anything. But it's always a place I start with people. What is it about? What are you arguing? And what is your area of expertise for this piece? Because I have hundreds of area of expertise. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it better explains the idea, like you say, that everybody has a story to tell because I think people sometimes feel like they don't. And if you look at areas of expertise that aren't actual professional areas, but just things you're really good at or that you know how to do really well or you've been through, so you've come out the other side and have had that transition, that those are things that actually are interesting to people, especially people who maybe want to do those same things. Yes. Yes, and if you start thinking that way about the quirky, the quirkiest definition you can possibly bring to area of expertise, you're going to have so much more fun as a writer, and you're not going to fall into the diary trap. You're going to say, oh, I get it. I've got an area of expertise about imaginary friends, because I had one as a kid. And right now I really wish I had one, because I really would like to talk to him again. I'd really like to talk to him again about, and now this piece is getting fun. <laughs> right? It's, I'm already having more fun than I've had for the rest of my day, just right there in that moment. It's like, wait a minute. I know about this. And suddenly we're just rising up out of that self-important drudgery that so much memoir writing is. I don't like my life. It's like, oh, please, stop. I'm already bored. What, do you, what don't you like about it? What are you doing about it? Not that it has to have a happy ending, but that it has to have an area of expertise. I'm an expert in being miserable. Now, that's a funny opening line, and I'd, be, I'd read the second sentence, wouldn't you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's, areas of expertise are a much better way to sort of set your cap and sit down and think about what do you know about um, than I know how to get my husband to X, cry, not cry do something, not do something. What are my areas of expertise? You know, start thinking about your intimate relationships, dogs, husbands, family. And where are your areas of expertise? Those make great places to write from. So this, you probably get this question a lot, and I think I've probably asked you this at Tribe as well, but probably a lot of people are wondering the same thing, which is let's say you want to write about something, but you're afraid that, what will happen if you write about it. So if someone finds out mm -hmm. you wrote something about them or you want to write this one, but it's sort of a topic that if you write about it, that, you know, could be 
bad for you or for people you know or something like that. So how do you get around writing about that stuff but without revealing anybody's personal information or things that might, you know, be bad for them? Yeah, there's a couple of issues in there. And the first one is let's write the piece first. There are so many reasons not to write. And I do remember answering somebody's question that, that I, with that ex- expression. There are so many reasons not to write. So let's first just write the piece. And do not share the piece with anybody who is going to tell on you. Share the piece with a writing professional, a coach, somebody who absolutely has your back. Do not share it with somebody that you share your home with because the only thing they can say is that they love it, and that's not going to help you at all. First, let's see what you've got long before you start worrying about it because the piece is going to change. And if you sit down to write a revenge piece, I guarantee you a 1,000% of the time it's going to fall apart pretty quickly and you're going to realize you've got nothing there. If you write a piece about the failure of getting revenge, now that's interesting. If you write a piece about how you tried to get revenge and you failed, or you tried to write about something to get revenge and you realized what a miserable job that is, that's interesting. But going about a piece that has to do with other people's stories is a very doable thing. If you start thinking about how it is and why it is you need to tell this tale. So let's say you've got a living relative who's, abused you and you want to write this tale the first thing is I want to ask you why do you want to write it what do you want to do here can you educate me about abuse can you teach me something about how you endured abuse and what the human mind does when the body is being abused can you take me to some place of knowledge then the piece isn't really about that person that piece is really about the transcendence and we can rise that, raise that piece up out of being just a piece where you say, this person did this thing to me. And then we start to wonder, do we really need that person to be fully identified? Because the piece is really about transcendence. So in other words, I always encourage people to talk to somebody who's invested in their success as a writer about pieces like this, about pieces about anything really. My sister and I talk like five times a day. She's a writer too. And we pull each other, each other out of the mud every single day um, because we get bogged down in this. Oh, I can't write that. You know, even though she's dead, she'll come back from the grave and hate me, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but let's see what the piece is about first. And then let's worry about how to keep things anonymous. You can give people certain um, you can, of course you can change the names, but that's easy. You can identify people differently. Maybe identify them by chess pieces. You know, this is the king, this is the queen, this was the pawn, I was a pawn. Maybe you can identify them by other iconic kind of labeling. So there's a million ways to get around clear identification, but mostly the piece isn't about them. The piece is about what you did with it, and then it changes radically which I think liberates us from this worry enormously, or at least I hope so. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And if you focus on what it's actually about, you may not even need to bring that person into it. You can just talk about the fact that it happened, but not necessarily have to bring the detail of who did it or, you know, who was involved in it. Yeah, I mean, as anybody who's ever been in marriage therapy will tell you, it's really not about the other guy. You know, it, it's really about how you feel about it. So bring the thing back on you. Take the responsibility for what you did with it. And the piece changes enormously and isn't about her. Now, I have, as I, as I said in Tribe, I have a sister-in-law who drives me crazy. 
And so I write about her, and she, she doesn't even know. She's never noticed. It's hilarious. And I have a blog post, I don't know, a few blog posts again uh, ago where I talk about how to write about difficult relatives. And I just use her as an example. Um, and it's great. I use her in, publica- in, in, um, sorry, in, in presentations all the time as a great example of someone who motivates me to do better because she always thinks I'm going to fail, which is fabulous. But So you can also use difficult relatives in a way that they never know about and it doesn't matter and it just helps you. So there's lots of stuff to do. But getting obsessed about they're going to find out is the number one killer of all good writing. It just don't think about them. Let's write the piece and see what we've got. Yeah, I like that idea. Write it first before you even worry because it, it may turn out to be nothing and then you just scrap it and then you just spend all that time worrying for no reason. Yeah. Yeah, really awesome. exactly. Yep. So and I there's so many like, reasons not to write, as I said. Anyway, yeah, what yeah, were you going to no, ask? Exactly. Well, no, yeah, that's completely, that was completely a, a good point, which is there are a million reasons not to write. So do the writing first and then worry later. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Well, I was just going to ask about your personal writing process. So do you have a daily practice? Do you only write when you're working on something specific? How does that sort of go for you? I get up every morning really early, and I eat, and I write. And I've been doing that since I left the New York Times in 1983 to write my first book. And it works for me. I edit in the afternoons. Um, I also now have a very large client base, memoir writers um, from all over the world. So I talk to them most afternoons or do things like this, talk on a podcast. Um, So, yes, I believe in the discipline of a schedule. I actually have a grid that I, now I guess everybody has a grid now that we have electronic calendars, but I have one up on the wall that has everything mapped out that I try to do and I try to follow it. And even walking the dog is written on the grid. And everybody teases me about my grid, but I don't care because I've written four mass market books, so clearly this thing works. At least it works for me. Um, Discipline. Writing all art, all art begins with discipline. I don't want to hear any counter-argument from anyone to that. And anybody who gives me one, I always say, so what have you made? What have you published? Because if they say, oh, no, you've got to be a free spirit, you've got to let that. It's like, no, no, no. You've got to sit in a hard chair and type. That's where writing actually begins. And I'm very, um, I, I, I'm just very determined that discipline is the first and foremost thing I must bring to the practice. Yeah, I think that lack of discipline probably takes down most writers. And Yeah, right now my kitchen like looks like um, – well, I could send you a picture, but I have to find my <laughs> phone first. And <laughs> it's in there somewhere. It's kind of uh, funny what my kitchen looks like. Because um, I just said to myself the last two days, I, I, I'm too busy. And I made, made applesauce, and then I made something else, and I made chicken soup, and then I made um, some creamy uh, butternut squash soup. And you could tell that in my kitchen right now. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, I feel you. That's that's why I always like, – my mom will always yell at me about my house is so messy and my dishes are – and I say, you know what? I get a lot of writing done. I've written six books this year. Like, you know, what what are you going to – you got to sacrifice somewhere. And for me, that's – well, I don't do my dishes for a few days. Hey. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Important priorities. <laughs> well, yes, and it's okay. Um, it really is. It's okay. 
You've got to do your best. But um, discipline, 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 absolutely. It can't get written without discipline. And I don't believe in taking drugs and staying up all night. I don't believe in mainlining um, caffeine and writing at 3 in the morning. I know lots of people who do. It doesn't work for me at all. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I'm a writer who needs to sleep. So I like to mm-hmm. stay up late, but I like to sleep too. <laughs> hmm Yep. Really. Awesome. Um, so you strike me as somebody who has a pretty strong mindset. So since this is a podcast that talks about mindset, I would love to just sort of dig a little bit into the whole pro writer mindset thing and sort of like how you got yourself to the point where you just know you're going to write about this stuff and believe in what you're doing and not let the noise in your head that says you shouldn't do it or, you know, you're not good enough or, you know, you're starting out. What, what do you know about this? How do yeah. you sort of get, because I know everybody deals with that, but especially in the beginning or the earlier stages of their career. So how did you sort of make that transition? I think that the best friend to every single writer is the books, are the books of the world. So that reading, having the companionship of a great book is the greatest encouragement you can have. And it's not that the, the, the only response to a great book is not, I could never write this. It's, wow, how did he do that, is another response. And the curiosity is what will get you there. How do you do that? What would it look like if I was really brave as a writer? What would that mean? And those kinds of challenges that say, well, I had, I mean, I had literally had an undergraduate degree in government from St. Lawrence University when I went to work at the New York Times and wrote the first first-person account that explained brain and mind science, the, the brain and mind science of Alzheimer's disease, to the world. I had no reason in the world to think I could do that. So what I did was I called up the smartest people in the world, and I asked them to explain Alzheimer's disease to me and what it was going to be. So in other words, I asked for help. And I read like crazy. I read other people's science writing. I said, oh, is that how you do this? You explain it with a feature lead. Oh, I see. So you put my mother in the front of the story, break their hearts, make them really care about her, then take her away with this awful disease. And then I see, then could go back, jump back and write the history of this disease and what it is. So it's educating yourself all the time with books and Learning the form, what I call in my, my method, if there is a method to me, and there is, it's called writing with intent. In other words, if you want to write for National Public Radio, learn the form. If you want to write an essay for Good Housekeeping Magazine, learn the form. If you want to write for the New York Times Opinionator blog, learn the form. So for me, it's always about discipline, learning the form, and, and, and just then doing it. You do the same thing when you learn how to hit a baseball. Why in the world wouldn't you apply the same thing to writing? Study it, do it over and over and over again, master it, and then you've got it. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I think that's something that I, because I work with a lot of fiction writers, and that's something I try to talk to them about too, is the idea of you can't just read a novel and think, oh, I can do that, and then just sit down and start writing a novel and have it come out like a novel. That would be like no. going to this fancy restaurant getting this, you know, $1,000 meal and then saying, oh, I'm going to go recreate that in my home kitchen. Like, you wouldn't do that. So why would you do that with your book? Or why would you not study how to write a novel before you try to write a novel? Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. And what novels have you read? I mean, I get a lot of that. I have to ask that question to a lot of people. What are you reading? And when I find out that they're not reading, um, but they want to write for The New Yorker, I have to change their, um, their habits. 
there is no reason to think you're going to write for The New Yorker if you don't read The New Yorker. And I mean read The New Yorker. And go back and read all the past issues you can find of that particular personal history column that they run that's so beautiful, that's a piece of memoir. But you've got to really have to read 100 of them or 50 of them or 25 of them before you can even begin to attempt one. You can't just read one and say, I can do that. Find out what they've covered and how does it work and how does the thing move and what does the structure look like, writer to writer. And then read John McPhee's pieces on structure and learn to structure a piece so that the reader feels the, the, the actual scaffolding of a piece that supports these wild observations you have of the world and that so they don't just read like one wild observation after another. So read and read and read and learn and learn and learn and read over your head. That's the best advice I can give everybody. Always read over your head. You know, don't tell me you're reading airport novels and then you want to go write the great American novel. That's just not going to work. Yeah, so definitely read your genre that you want to write in because otherwise how can you do a good job at it? Right, and don't just read 16 books on alcoholism if you want to read about, write about alcoholism. That's not the point. You're not going to imitate somebody else's great book. You're not going to imitate Caroline Knapp's great book called Drinking a Love Story. You've got to learn about structure, and you've got to learn about how to tell a tale, and you've got to learn when to be funny and when to lay off the humor. And you've got to learn about how people switch gears and how they do characterization. How did, how did I make you fall in love with my mother? I'll show you. Let me show you. I'll teach you that. So that's what a piece magazine piece is saying. Go read the piece. I made you fall so in love with her in three paragraphs that when I took her away, you were heartbroken. But I couldn't take 16 paragraphs. It's a magazine piece. It has a very finite amount of space. So I had to pick very specific instances from her life. And one of them that I pick when I, I've written longer form is she was one of those girls who used to go off to her prom. Her mother was a great seamstress, and her grandmother used to sew her prom dresses. And she would sew rosettes onto the neckline. And my mother hated any kind of fancy um, additions, accessories. But she loved her mother so much that in her bag, in her night bag, she would take a nail scissors and a needle and thread. And she would clip off the rosettes on the way to the prom. But on the way home, she sewed them back on. Now, there's someone you're going to like, right? Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's a great We story. all have those details. We all have those details about us. We just forget to use them. But it, it makes a so great every day point. an average talk. Yeah, Probably. everyday average talk. Are you kind, do you feed the birds in winter? That's a great characterization detail. It's, it tells me far more than he's five foot five and has blue eyes, which tells me nothing. Yeah, exactly. It might give you a visual description, but it <laughs> yeah. doesn't tell you much about the person. Nah, it doesn't tell me anything about the person. Nope. I almost, you know, physical descriptions mean nothing, but... How do you get at the person's character? How do you reveal their character in a gesture, in a sentence, in a word? That's writing. And that you see with great writing. And that's why you read all the time for your pro-writer mindset. You read above your head all the time. All the, all the time. The best, the best resource in the world is the Paris Review, which is a quarterly magazine that's been published for more than 60 years in America. And they have the interviews with every major writer you have ever heard of in the last 60-something years. They have Ernest Hemingway. They have somebody who's writing today because the Paris Review is still being published. And all the interviews are online, and they're free. And you can go read all of them. Saul Bellow, William Kennedy, um, you know, who's your contemporary fiction writer that you love? Sam Lipsight. They're all in there. Just go read them. They're free. 
and they talk about craft. And that's what I mean by reading over your head. Read over your head. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge proponent of craft and, and just feel like if you're not willing to study craft, you probably should do something else with your life besides write because craft is that thing <laughs> that's going to change everything for you. Yes. Yeah. Good. That's just my yes. personal opinion. But, you know, that, that's what my experience was, was that I spent 13 years thinking I could just write stories, write fiction, and be okay and, like, not have to learn anything that I hadn't already learned. And finally, after a lot of struggle trying to write a novel, I finally was like, okay, there's something I don't know. And so I stopped and I went and went back and learned craft again and found story structure, which was something I never was taught before. And it changed my life so profoundly that I not just remember the moment that it happened, but it changed my career, the direction of my life as a writer. Like I do coaching because of that moment. So it really did change everything. Yes, of course. Yeah. Good. Super important. Super important. This was so awesome. You gave us such good information, and I hope that people listening are going to be inspired to try to write some memoir because I think the way you frame it makes it seem so doable and makes it feel like, oh, I do have the things I could write about. Like, I feel like my life isn't boring anymore. I feel like there are things <laughs> I've been through. I think I that's really, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you really changed Like, hearing you at Tribe really changed that for me because I always thought memoir is something I'm not going to touch. And after hearing you talk, it was like, oh, I could write about getting over the fear of dogs by getting a dog. And I could write about, you know, and I sort of started thinking of all these things that I'd been through that I was like, man, that could be a great, you know, essay or a book of essays or, you know, whatever. And I sort of got this whole, like, excitement. And so now I'm thinking next year I might actually take on, like, a a memoir project. So thank you for that inspiration because I think that was a piece of writing that I sort of hadn't touched yet, but I totally have experience that I could write about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait to hear what you do. I can't wait to read what you do. I'm thrilled. How wonderful. Go get them. Yeah, definitely. Um, The last thing I wanted to ask you, which is what I try to end on for everybody, is what is your favorite piece of writing advice or the favorite piece of advice you've gotten in your writing career that you can share with everybody? Well, Thomas Hardy used to tie himself in a chair every day, and I tell that to people (laughs) all the time. (laughs) And if that's what it takes, do it. Wow, that's that's brilliant. Yeah. Really, really simple and brilliant. Works for me. I have done it, by the way. Really? <laughs> yeah, get out of, you know, a, just an old bathrobe tie. I had one on my chair, and just looking at it reminded me, so sometimes I didn't have to actually tie it, but sometimes I had to tie it. So what the heck? Yeah, I like to use a timer, I think, as my tie, so I sort of, the timer gets set, and I know, okay, you're not moving from this chair until that thing goes off. Yeah, it works for people. I mean, some reminder that you've got to sit still is the thing that we're getting at here. I think you and I are agreeing completely on this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you can't write by not sitting down or standing at your desk and writing. So it's sort of a part of it. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. Mm -hmm. So where can we find you online? Your website is marionroach.com, right? Yeah, it's M-A-R-I-O-N-R-O-A-C-H.com. And there, there is access to lots and lots and lots of material about how to write memoir, all for free, all for you, hundreds of thousands of words on how to do it. There's also access to my online classes, which start next week, and there's still openings in almost all of them, um, that are 
range from one night to six weeks to eight month classes. Um, and there's also access just to me. I'm, I also work one on one with people. I have many clients and I'm delighted to start with people absolutely from scratch who just want to do what you just decided you were going to do about the dog. And we start with what's it about? What's the argument? How are you going to do it? And go all the way through the project together if they want, or I take manuscripts and read them and I do all kinds of things with them or it's lots of fun. Wow, that is awesome. So everybody go check her out, marionroach.com. Thank you so much for being here. I, I absolutely am just appreciative of, of you sharing your time with us because you're amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be asked, and this was a joy. So I just am deeply grateful. Thank you, thank you. You are welcome. If you guys like this podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and share it with your friends, and I will catch you next time.